Foreign Minister Jorge Arriaza, thank you for your time this evening. It's been almost exactly two years since I first interviewed you here in this office, just days after the United States had recognized Juan Guaido as the president of Venezuela. And though much time has passed, being here now on the surface, it seems as though little has changed in Venezuela. Your government is still firmly in place. The vast majorities of the countries in the world still recognize its legitimacy. But I'm wondering if you can, for the international audience, provide a summary of how this coup attempt led by the United States impacted the domestic political situation here in Venezuela. Thank you, Annie, and uh, welcome to Venezuela always. It's very important to visit Venezuela, to see and live our reality, because in the media you will hear and watch whatever um, folks on the fake information. So how has it impacted um, domestic policy? It was really an international operation. It was um, something planned in the Department of State, in the White House, in the White House with the hawks of Mr. Trump, and it didn't work. Of course, it was dangerous. There was a coup attempt, a military coup attempt last year, April the 30th. And uh, this was really a risk. Another risk was February 23, when the attempt to enter so-called humanitarian aid assistance from Colombia with people that were armed and uh, there was also a very delicate situation. And uh, the opposition at first got united. Guaido was supposed to be their leader, but of course he's not a leader at all. He was someone like like a someone who fall on a parachute and he has no leadership at all. Nobody, nobody knew his name in Venezuela. Nobody knew how to spell his name. And most of the Venezuelans have forgotten how to spell his name already. And uh, at the beginning, when they had all this support and they thought that the military would, would defect and would betray the, the constitution, they, they had this, you know, they gave this impression to the world, this perception to the world that it was a matter of days or weeks, maybe. But it was never a matter of nothing. We never felt that the government and that the republic was in risk. But they did. They thought that President Maduro was going to resign and was going to escape from Venezuela to some island in the Caribbean. Then what happened is the time passed, the leadership, the so-called leadership of Guaido disappeared and the opposition began to fracture again, to divide. So now it's, it's really, really divided. And they have no chance at all of, of winning an election in Venezuela. And they have no, no face. No? And uh, they are, I think, the US, the, the administration of Donald Trump insists in Guaido, but it has no sense. So it, it's, it's like a ghost. So they are trying to, to find another leadership or some 
program that unites the opposition, something would, that I believe would be good for Venezuela. Although it would be better if there were another kind of, of opposition that believed in the Venezuelan people, that uh, had a national approach to the solutions uh, of the problems of the, of the country, and not this opposition that depends from Washington. And the worst part of it was in the economy, the sanctions, so-called sanctions, because the government of the United States has no moral and no legal faculty to punish um, other, other states, but they impose these um, unilateral coercive measures. They have impacted the national income, the national revenue, um, 99% less of revenue in Venezuela in the last years compared to 2015, 2014. And uh, they attacked, you know, these sanctions attacked our national oil industry, PDVSA. And that is the heart of our economy. And if you, if you damage Venezuela, uh, PDVSA, then uh, it has an impact in all of the economy and of especially for the state and the redistribution of the, of the revenue of the rent. So the investment in social programs, in infrastructure, in health, in the housing, everything has to be, has been moderate because of this, of the impact of the sanctions. And it's really, it's criminal, I must say, because people are dying and people are getting sick also. And, uh, maybe some medical equipment in the hospitals are, are not um, are not uh, functioning because we don't have a spare part that we need from Philips or Siemens or General Electric or whatever, or because these companies never came to, to do the maintenance that this equipment needs and people can easily die. Or if you need a surgery and you cannot find a specific um, medicine that you need for that surgery or for the treatment. So it's, it's difficult. No? And uh, in spite of all of that, our people have been resilient, which is a very uh, new and, and popular word expression now. And uh, they have demonstrated that this won't stop them. And most of the Venezuelans are aware that this is all an, an international operation to um, overthrow the government of President Maduro and to take power to have control of our natural resources, of our oil, of our gas, gold, etc. That division you speak of within the opposition, which appears to be the major result of this U.S. policy of regime change was very apparent during this past election earlier this month, December, because there were opposition parties which participated in the vote, recognized its legitimacy. And meanwhile, Guaido and his faction, which you describe as being controlled essentially by the United States, boycotted. As a result, Guaido will lose his seat, delivering a final nail in the coffin of this regime change project and he'll be a private citizen. I have to say, as I've traveled around the United States and other places in the world discussing Venezuela, a question people ask me a lot 
is why is Guaido still free? This is someone who, as as you mentioned, led a violent military uprising against the government and is encouraging revolt. How do you explain the decision not to arrest Guaido to people on the outside who look at this situation and say, it's absurd? I, I even share that, that vision. You know? Why is he free? But it doesn't depend on the executive branch of power. It depends on the and the judiciary and uh, the citizen power, which is another power in Venezuela, the, the attorney general attorney. But the the branches of government or of power in Venezuela collaborate. It's uh, one of the principles of our constitution. And I understand that uh, it is not a good idea to give this man more popularity. He's diminishing, he's disappearing by himself. So I think that the decision of the judiciary system has been correct by the results. No? Of course, many of the Venezuelan people and maybe myself, we would have decided something else, maybe from January. But what the Venezuelan institutions have done, you can see it by, by the reality. No? This man doesn't exist anymore. That's definitely that's that's worse than than going to jail. It is in some ways actually worse. Guaido's exit from the National Assembly will coincide with a change in government in the United States. According to Bloomberg, the incoming Biden administration, citing unnamed sources, this this report asserts, quote, seeks a negotiated solution in Venezuela claiming it will offer sanctions relief in exchange for, quote, free and fair elections. Are these acceptable terms for your government? We would have to ask Donald Trump and the people that supported him, what fair and fair and? Just free and fair, free but and from fair. the Biden, this is what the Biden yes, but, campaign. But what is free, fair, just elections in the United States or in Europe? Um, what are the standards you know, to, to understand what they mean? Um, but in any case, we've been in power for almost 22 years. We had to interact with Mr. Bill Clinton, with Mr. George W. Bush, with Mr. Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Imperialism is one. The system is one. It doesn't matter who is in office, who is in the White House. But there, if, if there is some, if, if Biden has any kind of new plan, if he desires to rectify about Venezuela, we have always been open to dialogue. Even with President Trump, President Maduro tried to open, and he did actually open some channels of communication. The results were not um, good, but we did, we did have several conversations. And uh, let's see what happens. If they want to um, make things regular, at least you know, regular relations with Venezuela, we are also willing to do it. If they don't want to, we don't really care. We'll see how we um, solve our own issues and the United States has nothing to do with our business. Should sanctions relief even come as part of an exchange? Sanctions are illegal. Sanctions are, are not in the international law, in the, in the 
Charter of the United Nations, they shouldn't even be in the table, on the table to discuss about. But uh, they have to be relieved. And uh, the solution, the political solution that we will build in Venezuela within the Venezuelan people is something else. So we hope that uh, the new government in the United States respects international law, respects the Venezuelan constitution, and that they establish some kind of dialogue with us. The U.S. recognition of Guaido did severe damage to diplomatic relations between Venezuela and the United States to the point that average people are suffering. There's no U.S. embassy here in Caracas, just as there's no Venezuelan embassy in Washington, D.C. That's a whole nother story about the, the fight to protect the embassy there. But essentially, people can't get consular services. So how can you encourage the Biden administration to at least reset in that arena? If they have some concern about the American people in Venezuela or about the Venezuelans in the U.S., they should work for them and they should take decisions considering their rights. We had the, at the beginning when this happened, we, we proposed this uh, modality of uh, protecting power. Mm -hmm. The U.S. suggested Switzerland. We agreed. We suggested Turkey, but then they said, but you don't exist. You are the former minister of the former regime of the former president Maduro. So in this back to the future joke, we couldn't solve this in legal terms. If they accept our protecting power, we have, we would have at least, or we would take at least this step. We could also go further. And if they want to send Mr. James Story to Caracas, he's welcome. And they would have to give us back our buildings in the U.S. and we will send some diplomat to the U.S. as well. That would, I think that would be the best because we would have, in spite of the differences, in spite of the fact that they have objections about whatever, the legitimacy of uh, President Maduro, we also could have about them, but that's not an issue. So if they want to um, improve our relationship, we are willing to do it. James Story is currently running a virtual embassy out of Bogota, Colombia. <laughs> this year, 2020, your government has arrested at least three U.S. citizens charged with pretty severe offenses. I'm talking about Matthew John Heath, who's accused of plotting to blow up oil refineries in an act of sabotage. He's a former U.S. Marine. Then we have Luke Denman and Aaron Barry, the former U.S. Green Berets who participated in the failed plot to capture or perhaps kill Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro this past spring. Has the U.S. government made any attempt whatsoever to check on the status, the well-being of these individuals or even negotiate their release? Not that I'm aware of. I have spoken or, or have had some contact with James Story since or, 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 all through the year, and he never asked about these uh, American citizens. And uh, I know their families were having concerned, and, and uh, they are very well treated here in Venezuela. And, and the two mercenaries of, of the May operation, the Jedi operation, they have had some 
virtual meetings with their families, no? Um, it's strange because when this man, Joshua Holt, was detained in Venezuela, all the establishment from the U.S. government and Congress and everybody complained about it and asked for his release. So for us, it's, it's a strange situation. These are mercenaries, but they were also soldiers for the U.S. Army. So if the U.S. doesn't care for their own soldiers, it's something we don't understand. But that's, that's none of our business, really. Perhaps a wake-up call. They have no consular uh, protection, nothing. It's, it's really... I don't know what they would think. I mean, these three guys, what they think about it. They should feel abandoned. It's a strange time to be foreign minister, considering the outbreak of COVID-19 has complicated everyone's travel plans, including for diplomats. But I noticed you have hosted some dignitaries over these past few months, including recently the Iranian foreign minister, Javad Zarif. I think this is his second visit to Venezuela in a little over a year. I was here in the summer of 2019 when he came as part of the meeting of the non-aligned movement in Caracas. I believe you yourself went to Iran in, in January of this year as well. The relationship between your two countries clearly reached new heights this year. We at the Gray Zone recently visited Megasis, the Iranian supermarket which opened here in Caracas, and Iran single-handedly broke the blockade of Venezuela with U.S. warships threatening to take action in the Caribbean Sea earlier this year when, when Iran delivered crude, much-needed crude to Venezuela. How has your relationship with Tehran impacted the material reality of average Venezuelans? We've had a already very good relationship with Iran for over 17 years. President Chavez decided to diversify our international relations. Before the revolution, we were almost a colony of the United States. We were maybe becoming like a Puerto Rico. But we, when President Chavez decided to establish relations with Russia, with China, with Iran, for instance, and many other countries in the world, we began to have a sovereign um, international policy. And uh, I believe that because Iran has suffered sanctions, they have a lot to teach us. And we have learned. And when they saw that we were going over the same pain that they did, uh, that they have been for so many decades, they opened their arms. Just as President Chavez did 14 or 15 years ago, we sent crude and, uh, to, to Iran as well. So we are working in many different areas. Some projects are very obvious, like <clears throat> the the gasoline, the, the crude, and uh, the food also, but some others we have to make more confidential because if we show them, they will be persecuted and they will be blocked. So, but I must say that people are feeling it. When, when you go to your, with, with your car to a gas station, it's really probable that that gasoline comes from Iran. And uh, 
many of the products, some of the products of the club boxes also come from Iran. So it's something that we are really feeling in, in, the, in the concrete reality of the Venezuelans. And I think it's an example. We're trying to, to organize an association of uh, countries that have been attacked by the unilateral coercive measures. We're working on it. This should happen next year. And uh, Iran is very keen on doing this, and Venezuela is also, and other countries. And uh, it's, it's not to attack the US or to attack some other country. It's to learn how to bypass the sanctions, how to live with the sanctions until the government of the US or the establishment in the US reflects and re rectifies this illegal policy. Other alliances which have proven to be vital this year, particularly in combating the outbreak of COVID-19, are the ones you mentioned, China, Russia, Cuba, Turkey. How has your relationship with these countries uniquely positioned Venezuela to respond to the health crisis, especially when you compare the results here to what's gone on in some of your neighbors, allies of the United States, which have essentially been abandoned? I must say that there are two factors. I think that President Maduro took control of the situation very early. I remember that when I traveled to China and to Iran, when I landed in Venezuela, this was January the 25th, something like this, he called me and he immediately conveyed the, this commission, national commission, to stop the COVID-19 in, in Venezuela. And then, of course, our money abroad is blocked more than 11,000 million, 11 billion uh, dollars blocked. We have gold and we, we can't use our money. I mean, when I say our money, it's not money from the minister or the president, it's the money from 30 millions of Venezuelans. And we needed the money. So we tried to reach the Bank of England that has gold, it's equivalent to two, $2 billion. And uh, we tried to use this money if they didn't want to give it directly to us because they have this political strategy not recognizing our government, whatever. We said, give it to the United Nations, give it to the UNDP, and we will coordinate with them. To similar to the oil for food? Yeah, similar program. to that. And, but they didn't accept. It went to a trial, which is something very, very weird in the in the just justice of, of, of the UK. And uh, what we did was reach our friends, China, Russia, Turkey as well, especially China most, but also Russia. Um, so we received we have received, I think, more than eleven or twelve direct flights from Beijing. And, and uh, some flight from Mos Moscow and some from, from Ankara as well. And uh, we have given our people real results. I mean, a PCR test in Venezuela are for free. And the treatment for COVID-19 is also for free. I mean, this, that's a right. We consider it a right of the Venezuelan people. When we have the vaccine, it's going to be also distributed for free. 
And this has been possible because of our allies. Some of this were donations, humanitarian assistance, others we could buy with the money that we have in China, which we cannot use in the rest of the world, but we can use in China. And this was a very good um, decision by President Maduro. We planified what we needed. We discarded that we could use our own money in Europe or in the US, in spite of the fact that we had conversations with, with PARHO, the Pan American um, Health uh, Organization, and with the World Health Organization, and with the US even, to see if we could use our money that was blocked but it was not going to happen. So we did this strategy and we have controlled the situation. At least our situation is much better than the situation of Colombia, Brazil, Peru, Ecuador, Chile, Argentina, and all of South America. Considering the situation in some of these countries which you've mentioned, it's no surprise really then that in places where the right is on the ballot, they're losing whether that's been in Argentina or more recently in Bolivia. It's also expected that next year in Ecuador, the left will return to power. As a student of history, which I know you are, I'm wondering what do you think it is about this region which makes the people so resilient, able to rise up in the face of even the most extreme forms of fascism, which we saw manifest in Bolivia over this past year and fight until the people return to power. It's not something you really see in other parts of the world. It's something that is that comes from our own history. We were invaded by the Europeans and uh, most of uh, the indigenous population was killed. Um, the African population that, that was brought to, to Latin America and the Caribbean, they also suffered slavery. And when finally they decided to be free, it was a definite decision. It was not something for 200 years ago. It's, it, it was a decision that has to be, that has to become a reality. We had political independence 200 years ago, and we are trying to be integrally independent today. So when things like that happen, when uh, a candidate from the bourgeoisie wins an election because they had money, funding from the US, from the USAID, from the NET, and from Europe, etc. That's a moment of confusion, but the people want to be free. So when they um, figure out that this president or this government wants, to, wants them to be slaves again, then they go back to where they come from. Of course, our national processes of liberation, the so-called progressive movement, the leftish, we should get united. No, that was the clue in, in the key in, in Bolivia. If they had divided, no, it would have been impossible. So that is the main challenge of our progressive parties and social movements. We have to understand that we have to be united because our enemy is united. Now, the, the capitalism, imperialism is very strong. It's all the world's larger and richer corporations. They want our natural resources. They want to control us. 
We want to control our governments, our armed forces, and we have to be united in order to stop such a monster. So that's the lessons that we, the same happened in Mexico or in Argentina. This, it was a big alliance of, of parties that regained power in, in Argentina. If they had had um, three different candidates, they would have never uh, regained power. So this is, uh, it's not going to happen by itself. It's not that, how do you call this from the clocks? The pendulum. The pendulum. The pendulum, no? It's not that it's going to go back to the left and stay there because it's magic. No, it's because we have to be united. We have to have a strategic vision of what we're doing and we have to stop the pendulum there. You talk about regional sovereignty, and so I wanted to just get your thoughts on the resurgence of ALBA, especially with Bolivia planning to return to the group. Now, what's really the difference between ALBA and other, even our regional um, initiatives of integration, is that it's not integration, it's union. We, we want to be really united. We want to um, recover or resume the project of Simon Bolivar, of this um, white confederation from Mexico to Argentina, including the Caribbean, including Brazil now, of course. And uh, it's not about the economy only. It's not about the bourgeoisie, the, the um, commercial bourgeoisie under agreements between them or among them. It's about the peoples. No? We, we want health for the people. We want literacy. We want education. We want housing for the people. We want the people to be happy. That's all. That is ABBA. And that cannot happen only with economic integration, with institutions. No, it happens if you include the people in the process of, of uh, taking decisions, of executing the policies. And uh, that is what we're trying to build with that. It's a different kind of, when, when you go to an hour meeting, it's, it's not, uh, you, you have to attend to them because it's not the same as when you listen to the ministers of the European Union or of the Andean community here, or even UNASUR or SELAC. It's different. We are really concerned about the human being, even spiritually, even um, their, their happiness, as I said. That's what we want them to be. Not only their basic necessities have to be covered, but much more than that. We have to make them be able to build a new world. Finally, I want to close with a reflection on some of the criticism I hear made against your government from what might be described as the ultra-left, which represents a small group of people, but their voices are amplified in Western media, especially U.S. media, and they have a way of thinking, a mentality which I think really permeates uh, throughout the, the thought in particularly the United States. As your government has made attempts to liberalize the economy as part of an effort to circumvent sanctions, or as you've sought to encourage foreign investment as part of an effort to increase capital flow within the borders here once again, some people look at this and say, that's not socialism. And it's very easy for people, especially from the outside, to look at President Nicolas Maduro and say, he's not Chavez. Chavez would never have done this. 
and and that this is not the 21st century socialist vision which Chavez put forward. But you actually knew Chavez quite well. Not only were you in his government, you're actually the father of one of his grandchildren. So can you give some perspective? Is it fair for people to say Chavez would do this? This is how he thought, or was he more of a pragmatic thinker? Yeah, uh, well, first of all, I think we cannot compare Chavez with no one. He was a different kind of leader. He had a special connection to the peoples of the world, not only the Venezuelan people. He was for us like a Simon Bolivar, really. No, it's these two main characters that that uh, came and, and they opened many ways and many paths to hope, and they gave people hope, which is very important. But of course. Uh, President Maduro is not Comandante Chavez, and he doesn't have to be Comandante Chavez. But he learned, he was the best student that President Chavez had. And uh, he knows what Chavismo is, he knows what socialism, he knows what Chavez wanted, and with whom Chavez wanted to build it. So, of course, we cannot even compare the, the time framework, because we've been under the worst attack. Even the Cubans are surprised of the concentrated doses of, of, of sanctions, of attacks against Venezuela. And uh, I think that no one would have bet for our success or for President Maduro. They thought it was, it was going to be over in 2014 with the Guarimbas of 2014, in 2016 after the elections of the National Assembly, in 2017, uh, after the other violent um, demonstrations, the other Guarimbas, after the Constituent Assembly, after trying to impose a fake government, after the sanctions, I mean, nobody thought outside Venezuela and uh, outside the peoples, uh, the real people, the humble that we could make, and we did. So I think if we made it, if we are still here and we're strong, and we have uh, won an election now broadly. I think that something has been well done by President. I think that we have to recognize, we have to accept that he has become a leader, that he has become a statesman, that he takes decisions, not only thinking in the Venezuelan people, but geopolitically. He thinks in the world, he thinks in Latin America and the Caribbean, he thinks in the multipolar world. He has a very good and close relation with, with uh, Vladimir Putin, with Xi Jinping, with uh, Erdogan in Turkey. So, and he has a, a, a huge leadership in the Bolivarian revolution. So I think that we, the world under, underestimated Chavez at the beginning for over five years, maybe, until the referendum in 2004. People underestimated Chavez. And they have underestimated Nicolas Maduro. And he has demonstrated that he's much more of a leader than any other president or any other political leader in, in Latin America and the Caribbean today. People might not realize that there were points when this country really could have fallen into a civil war and that history seems to be behind you now. I mean, why do the national armed forces, the Bolivarian armed forces, support President Maduro because 
they are convinced that he is the expression of the popular will of the people and that he is trying to defend the constitution, the republic, I should say, the existence of the Bolivarian Republic of Venezuela. If President Maduro would have resigned as they wanted us, as Elliot Abrams told me, I'm waiting for Maduro, to which island does he want to um, escape? Then we wouldn't have a nation. We wouldn't have a country. We would be in a civil war or you never know what would have happened, a dictatorship or a government from the empire and uh, the IMF would have taken control of our, we wouldn't have any kind of sovereignty. So I think that in spite of, we, of course we make mistakes, we're not perfect, we're human beings. And it's not easy to build a new system, a democratic socialism, if you are under aggression. It's not even easy without any aggression. In this capitalist world, to build something different is a big challenge. But if you are attacked as we are, it's much more difficult. And we are still here and we are making things happen. And the people have hope and the, the humble in Venezuela support the Bolivarian revolution. So I think that we are somehow giving an example to other peoples, not to copy the Venezuelan revolution. You know, the revolutions cannot be um, exported or imported. The revolutions come from within the feelings of the people. But as the Cuba, as Cuba did for many decades, and they're still doing, they are there standing up and demonstrating that it, another way, another path is possible. That's what we're doing. And I think that the peoples of the world should defend the Bolivarian revolution, not because I want to, not because I say so, not because we're better than, than other revolutions, but because if we, if we are destroyed, if we disappear from history, then many things will not be able to happen in other parts of the world. So it's, it's interesting. We're living an interesting, interesting moment, uh, a moment of, of a real change, profound change in, in Venezuela. And we have to hold on. That's what we have to do. Well, it's been a great pleasure of mine to visit the country multiple times and spend time here, see how it's constantly changing and adjusting and learn from it myself. And then, of course, it's always an honor to speak with you about it. So thank you, Foreign Minister, for your time this evening. Thank you very much.